verses uh, 7 through the end of the chapter. And so we're just going to run through that. Uh, If you've not been with us, uh, let me give you just a little bit of a picture about where we're at so we're all on the same page. Um, Revelation is a book. It's It's a revelation from Jesus to John. And so Jesus is revealing what is about to come to John. And there are many different ways uh, that have been utilized, a different, different hermeneutics uh, that have been chosen in order to interpret uh, Revelation. And there's a lot of disagreement amongst uh, very faithful scholars out there. Uh, what we are looking at this, uh, uh, over the course of Revelation is we are demonstrating that Revelation is not just a, that there are some literal facets of the book, there are some symbolic facets of the book, there are prophetic facets of the book, and there are also apocalyptic texts in this book. And Revelation is a uh, sort of the gold standard for, an apocaly- for apocalyptic literature. And one of the things that we've discussed is uh, th- there's a lot of, of, of different, uh, s- there's different symbols in the text uh, that make you think of, uh, that if you take them too literally, uh, then honestly they wouldn't have made sense to the original reader. So as we read through Revelation, the first thing we got to think of is what would the original audience, what would they have understood this to mean? And so if we start thinking that locusts or Apache helicopters and things like that, the original readers would have had no understanding of what that meant. All right, so we've got to think about how does the original audience, how are they intending uh, to take this information? And we also have to understand that a lot of what is written in Revelation has already occurred. The majority of Revelation, in fact, I would say, has already occurred. It's a depiction of what was happening in the life of John. However, there is a significant portion that is happening now and that will continue to happen into the future. The last thing that I want to say, and those of you who have been with us know that I know this, is that the Great Tribulation that many people talk about, and they, they discuss it being seven years, and that there are calendars that we look at and that type of thing, that's not the way that I read Revelation. I don't read Revelation and believing that there's a specific seven years that we're looking towards or anything like that, but that in fact we are currently resting in the Great Tribulation right now. And that the tribulation began with the resurrection of Christ, and it will last until the second coming of Christ. That that is the great tribulation that we're enduring. And so these numbers like seven years or 1260 days or times, times, and half a time or 42 months, all of those represent time between the resurrection of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And so if you understand that, at the very least, you'll understand what, I, where, what I'm getting ready to preach today. And so that's a good reminder just for every one of us. I want to pray, and then we're going to dive into this. We've got a lot of verses to cover, so I'm not going to read them all out at the start. We're going to read them as we go. But this morning's message is entitled, The Seed Over the Serpent, Part 2. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this worship that we've already had with the kids leading us this morning. Thank you for the blessing that those children are. We ask you to continue to bless them as they walk with you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would bless us this morning as we read your word, as we study and apply your word. And I pray that um, it will uh, bear fruit. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. War. War. In 1970, a singer by the name of Edwin Starr wrote a song entitled, 
War. And many of you all know this song. And partial lyrics. Now, I'm just going to tell you, Derek asked me if I would sing it this morning. I said, absolutely not. But now that I read the lyrics, I'm like, I mean, this is what it sounds like me reading it. War, huh? Yeah. What is it good? Doesn't have the same gist, does it? I'm still not going to sing it. <laughs> but I'll just, just hang with me, bear with me as I read these words, okay? War, huh? Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Uh, I don't get the uh part. But anyway, war, huh? Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. All right. Now he continues through this song with this extended commentary of the obvious tragedies of war. And if you know the song from the 70s, and I've heard it multiple times, I'll be honest with you though, I never really listening to the song grasped what he was saying. It's like it was hard for me to understand the lyrics. Um, but if you, if you read those lyrics, he goes through an extended commentary of the tragedies of war, that, that mothers lose their children and that there's death and there's heartache and that innocent people uh, get killed. And we do know that in war, those things happen. And we do know that those are tragedies. Anyone who has lost family members or a friend in war can attest that war can be a devastating situation. However, I remember very pointedly back when I was in seminary that my ethics professor, Dr. Coppinger, uh, we were talking about ethics and we were talking about the ethics of war. And he brought up this song and he, re he recited the song. In fact, I believe he actually played the song for us because he was not going to sing that song either. And so I was listening to the song. It was the first time I really grasped the lyrics. And basically what he brought, brought to our attention was that the premise of the song is absolutely ridiculous. Not the fact that there, are, that there aren't tragedies. Of course there are tragedies. And we don't like those tragedies. But to say that there's nothing good that comes out of war is absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely... I want you to think about this for a second, okay? Without going into grand detail, imagine the various outcomes that have benefited society because people went to war. I want you to think about the Revolutionary War. I want you to think about the Civil War. Think about World War II and what it accomplished. And think even still about our war on terror. Now think about those things. Certainly people died. Certainly there were tragedies and there was devastation. But certainly there were also great, great, wonderful things that came out of that. Without these wars, the United States would not be a reality. We wouldn't. Without the Civil War, civil rights might still be in the dark ages, folks. Now, we got a long way to go, but the Civil War helped with that. Without World War II, ethnic Jews might have been eradicated. And without our war on terror, even with as many debacles as we see, 9-11 may have not have been the only thing to happen. That might have been a regular occurrence. So we can all say that there are trage tragedies in war, that there's devastation in war. But we can't say that there is nothing good that comes out of war. Oftentimes there are. It's sort of this yin and yang, if you will. It's sort of this, this uh, situation where we have to look at all sides of it. In a fallen world, God uses 
war. He does. He used it in Scripture. If we go through Scripture, we will see that God uses war, that God's people went to war. In fact, I would even argue that the means of missions in the Old Testament was carried out by the sword. Now, we don't do that in the New Testament era. In the age of the church, we do not carry out missions with the sword. But in the Old Testament, it did. How did God's people spread? How did the Word of God expand? How did the people come into the land of Canaan? They did it with the sword. In a fallen world, God uses war, even the devastation, to bring about His sovereign will. But while we are focused on physical wars, we need to understand that there's something even greater happening. There is a spiritual war that is occurring right now. And it's been happening for a very long time. And it's just as ruthless, but the outcome has far more certainty. See, when we go to war, there is no certainty in that what's going to be the outcome. We've realized that, especially here recently. We don't know what the outcome is. But with this spiritual war, as devastating as it can be, the outcome is certain that Christ reigns victorious. Let's look at the fall of Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 and 9. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, this passage is especially a little tricky. And the reason it's tricky is that if you read through that passage and take it at face value, and if you pull that passage out from the rest of the context, you might think that that passage is talking about the original fall of Satan. And so we often talk, we, we relate to passages in, for instance, in Isaiah, some in Job, about this idea that Satan has fallen and his, and his angel minions uh, fell as well. They sinned against God and God cast them out of heaven, right? And that's what we've talked about. We've discussed that. And if we read through this passage and read it out of context, we'll think that that is exactly what this is talking about. And in fact, at first reading, this is exactly what I thought it was. In fact, until, up until recently, that was how I would have preached this text. But after more study, after reading it within the context, and also reading some really smart guys all right, that know this stuff and know the original languages better than I do, I've come to a, a different conclusion. And so what I think is going on here, as we read it more closely is that it appears that this passage, these first three verses, is a depiction of the result of Christ's death, His resurrection, and the ascension to the throne with regards to Satan's plight. I believe that's what's going on. I want you to think, remember last week when we talked about the first six verses, that Satan was trying to prevent the work of Christ. So if we read that in verse 4, it says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And what we talked about was that was a depiction of Satan as he was trying to prevent 
Christ from doing the will of God. Basically living a perfect life and then dying on the cross. You see, if Satan can eliminate Christ before Christ can go to the cross, then Satan wins because Christ has to die on the cross. You may say, what if just Jesus just dies just in general? He can't just die. It has to be a sacrificial death in the way that God sovereignly laid out. But if Satan can prevent that, then Satan wins. So we see in this passage that Satan is like, there's this imagery of Satan waiting there at the birth of Christ, getting ready to devour Jesus so that he doesn't perform his due diligence. And we see that throughout Jesus' life. We see that at the very beginning of his life, that even Herod was being used by Satan in order to try to, uh, to eliminate Christ before Christ can do what he was sent to do. But he was unsuccessful, and Jesus Christ did accomplish his messianic goals, and verses 7 through 17 detail the ramifications of that defeat. In fact, what we're going to see is that if Satan cannot defeat Christ then what he's going to do is he's going to choose to try to win smaller battles. If he can't win the war, he's going to try to win small battles just to disrupt you and I. In verses 7 through 9, they depict this defeat as a war where Michael the archangel is casting Satan out and his demons from heaven. Now, is this real or is it symbolic? Now, if, it's, if somebody tells me that this is a real depiction of what happened, that as Christ is living a perfect life, dying on a cross, buried, rising on the third day, and then ascending to the throne. If that while that is happening, you tell me that Michael the archangel is at war with Satan and is casting Satan out of heaven, I'm fine with that. I don't think that's how we're intending to read this. Now, is Michael a real? Yes, Michael's real. Okay. Did Satan get cast out? Absolutely. Okay. All those things are real. But in this passage, what I think is going on is that John and Jesus is revealing this in such a way to John that it depicts the ultimate defeat of Satan. I would love to read this literally, that Michael and the angels are pulling out a can of holy thunder on the devil. You thought I was going to go somewhere else with that, didn't you? Okay, I'm not. I'm not. I'm a Baptist preacher. We ain't doing that. All right. However, taking this in context, I believe what's going on is just some symbolic imagery. Okay. That, that Christ dying on the cross was the ultimate defeat of Satan. And that is a picture of, of Michael. But he's basically uh, depicting that through this picture of Michael the archangel basically casting out Satan. And if you read that, really Satan has no leg to stand on. I mean, Michael is just casting him out like he's nothing. Why? Because God's on his side. Jesus wins. So this does believe, I believe that Michael is real and that there are real spiritual battles, but in this particular vision is symbolic to show that the blood of Christ has removed any and all accusatory authority over those in Christ. What this means is because Satan has been defeated, for believers, there is no more guilt or shame. There's none. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. As believers... Far too often, now listen to what I'm going to say here. Far too often, we give Satan way too much authority over our life. We give him way too much credit. Certainly that serpent is powerful, 
but he is defeated. He's been cast out. His accusations are impotent against those who are sealed by the blood of Christ. Hear me again. The accusations and the deception that Satan can pull against the saints have no power against you if you are sealed by the blood of Christ. None. They're not true. They're all false. Satan can come at you every day of the week and say, you're lost. You're no good to God. God hates you. God doesn't want anything to do with you. You might as well live your life for yourself and for the world because you're no good to God. If you are a believer in Christ, do not believe that. It's a false accusation. There's no power in it. He has no power to accuse you at all. Do you still feel shame over past sin in your life? You're covered in the blood. You're covered in the blood. Let go of that shame. I almost said let it go in here, but I, was re- I knew the kiddos were going to be up front, and I did not want a Disney chorus on our hands, okay? But in all seriousness, if you feel shame and sin, a shame of the sin and guilt over the sin in your past, if you are a believer in Christ, seriously, let it go. Quit being frozen and petrified by that. Christ has won. You are victorious. Because Christ was victorious. Do you still feel guilt over transgressions that likely no one else cares about or remembers? You know exactly what I mean. You think back across your life and you have those cringe moments. Like you might be thinking, you might think of something that you've done 10 or 20 years ago. And maybe when you were an unbeliever. And you just cringe. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. Get over it. Get over it. You're covered in the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ wins. It is true that sin in our lives can disrupt and destroy, which is why we need to repent and believe upon the name of Christ. However, after that, walk away from the shame and guilt. Walk away from it. Leave it behind you. The accusations of Satan have no power over the people of God anymore. Or as Paul said it in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rest in the victory of Christ. There are some of us who are paralyzed by our past sins. We're paralyzed. And we start believing those accusations from Satan when he says, you're no good to the church. You're no good to the church. You're no good to God. You are no good in sharing the gospel. You are not a good example of Jesus. You're not a good example of somebody who would witness for Christ. You are no good on the mission field because of who you were. And Christ says, stop worrying about who you were and start thinking about who you are. You are my child, the Father says. Rest in the victory of Christ. The second point I want to say is this. They loved not their lives. They loved not their lives. Revelation 12, 10 through 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. I want to read that again. 
And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Folks, this is not something that's going to happen. This has happened. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This has already happened. Satan has been thrown down. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The devil's not ignorant. The devil knows that he's lost. He knows that his time is short. And so what's he going to do? Wreak as much havoc as he possibly can for the church in the short time that he has left. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. How has victory been won over Satan? By the blood of Christ. It was not by a sword. It was not by artillery. Artillery. It wasn't by some nation, all right, that thinks they're better than everyone else, going through and just laying waste. That they are sort of like God's hammer. No, we don't need that. Why? Because Christ did it, and He did it with His blood. Freedom is not free. Is such a common saying that it has been become. It has become almost cliche, but it's true. Freedom is not free. Every freedom that we enjoy in this country was paid for by the blood, sweat, and sacrifice of brave men and women who have stood in the gap between evil and the innocent. The reason we can sit here today free to worship, at least for the moment, is because men and women over the last 250 years have shed blood so that we can have these freedoms to do that. I'm thankful for it. Folks, I'm not nationalistic. I am patriotic. I am thankful that I live here in the United States. But I also mourn because there are many of our brothers and sisters in other nations who do not have this privilege. They don't have this privilege. And as I've said before, I believe that in some cases, their faith is better off because of it. Because they have not been swayed by the, by the comforts of the world. Our freedom from sin was secured by the most precious blood of all, though, the blood of Jesus Christ. And while men and women are willing to risk their lives for our civil freedoms, what I want to ask you this morning is, is the church willing to risk their lives for the spiritual freedom of the lost? Are you willing to do that? Revelation 12, 11 says, And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They were willing to take their testimony to the grave with them. Christians will march and go to war for all kinds of civil liberties, but are we willing to give our lives for the testimony of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to forsake the comforts that have been bought for you? Are you willing to forsake those comforts, those civil liberties, so that 
others might have the liberty of their soul. Not all of us are called to sneak into closed countries, risking our physical lives in obedience of the Great Commission. Not all of us are called to do that. Not all of us are called to be tried in the courts of the heathen for the crime of blasphemy against false gods, like our brothers and sisters in other nations are, at least not yet. But as believers, we are called. We may not be Peter and John. We may not be called to be like Peter and John, but we may be called to be a Martha and a Mary, to serve the Peters and the Johns. This morning, if you are a believer, what I want to ask you this morning, if you are a believer, if you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord this morning, what I want to know is what have you done with that testimony? Don't be thinking about what your neighbor has done. Don't be thinking about what your spouse has done. Don't be thinking, well, I've done more than my neighbor. I don't care about that. What have you done this morning with your testimony for Jesus Christ? I'm talking to believers this morning. What will we show to Jesus when He demands account for what we have done with the freedom that He has purchased? What will you do? Will you show Him your calloused hands that you got for serving after serving the lost? the least. Will we point, will you point to your tear-soaked prayer closet? Will you open your tattered Bible and show them, show him the names of those whom you have witnessed to, that you've written in the margins? Not that have been saved, but that you've witnessed to. When Jesus demands an account for what you, have, what you have done after receiving the grace of God, what will you show him? Will you show him calloused hands, tear-soaked prayer rooms, a tattered Bible? Or will we show him our Netflix accounts and all the shows that we've binged on? There's a wonderful quote by John Piper, and he's speaking of Twitter but I think it could be replaced with Netflix or Amazon Prime or all the entertainment in the world. And I'm going to paraphrase what he says. But he says this generally. He says, I'm thankful for Twitter because at the end of the age, our prayerlessness will not be revealed because we didn't have enough time. Or if I could say it this way, we're not going to be able to go to Christ and say, sorry, Lord, I didn't have enough time to serve the least. I didn't have enough time to pray. I didn't have enough time to witness. Because I was on Twitter the whole time. I was binge watching Netflix. And just so you know, I hated writing those words because it was self-incriminating. And so often this stuff is. And just in case you think that I'm talking about works-based salvation, I'm not. I'm not talking about works-based salvation. 
We are saved by grace through faith, not of anything that we do. I'm not talking about works-based salvation. What I'm talking to you about is this. What are you doing with your salvation? You have been saved, not of anything that you have done, but only Christ. Now, what are you doing with it? Because believers that John is pointing to, he's saying they did not care about their lives for the sake of the testimony of the gospel. They didn't care about that. They didn't care about comforts, creaturely comforts. They weren't worried about those things. They were worried about the testimony of Jesus Christ going to the ends of the earth. What are you willing to do to make that happen? They love their lives. They love not their lives even unto death. Now let's go to our last point. On the wings of eagles. Revelation 12, 13 through 17. And then the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Even in defeat, Satan is relentless. He is, the, the, the child has been born. He has accomplished what he was intended to accomplish. And now what's he doing? He's going after the people of God. The woman represents the people of God. And Satan is going after her. And who else is he going after? Her other progeny. Her other children. He's going after them now. He's like, I can't have Jesus, but I'm going to have the rest of them. Does he have you this morning? We discussed last week how this woman represents the people of God and now that Jesus has secured victory Satan seeks to pursue us and persecute us in order to cause us to fold and scripture says that the dragon pursued the woman who had given birth and made war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Satan is not going to leave you alone just because you're sealed with the blood no because you're sealed with the blood he's going to go after you even more Satan will throw everything he has at you. Can you withstand his advance? Not on your own, you can't. You can't. But with Christ, you can. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent. During this time of tribulation, we must... Allow God to nourish us. What I mean by that is we cannot confess Christ, go through all the trappings of of the liturgical Christian calendar and all those sorts of things, and not commit ourselves fully to Christ. We have to let the Lord nourish us. 
And he does this through the Holy Spirit. He does this through prayer. He does this through meditating and reading the Word. And he does this through corporate worship and fellowship. Even in battle, even during war, soldiers must take time to rest in order to be nourished. They must. They have to. Because if they don't, they're going to lose. Even the hardest core soldiers that are out there in the middle of the desert or in the middle of the mountains, whatever it might be, have to take time to rest. As a believer, nourishment isn't going on vacation and resting apart from God and His people. Sometimes we think that's what nourishment is, right? And rest is. Well, I'm going to rest. Well, how are you going to rest? Well, I'm just going to take time for me. I'm going to go away for a little bit. I'm not going to see anybody for a little bit. I'm just going to take time for me. Folks, that is not a Christian picture of of rest. That is not a Christian picture of nourishment. Now, I have no issues with vacation. I like vacation, all right? But there is a difference between vacating like your job, all right? Like for me, the university for a little while, and vacating your life with Christ. There's a difference between those two things. Nourishment is found by resting in God and His people. If you are weary this morning, if you are stretched this morning, if you feel like you are always burning the candle at both ends, I'm sure everybody in here has moments in your life where you feel that very thing, where you just feel like it's burning at both ends. May I suggest finding your rest in the Lord? May I suggest reevaluating your life? If you always feel stressed, if you always feel anxious, if you always feel burnt out, before you go to a vacation, before you try to separate from everything that you think is wearing you out, may I first just say this reevaluate your life and what is important. Because it is likely if, that, if your job or whatever you, are, whatever you have in your life is causing this type of anxiety and stuff, it's not just affecting your day-to-day, it's also affecting your worship. It's also affecting your ability to exalt the Lord. It's affecting your ability to give everything to Christ. You know, the Bible says that we are called to fulfill the Great Commission. That might be going into a closed country. It might just be going to serve those at a soup kitchen. It might be going to help clean up an individual's yard or home. It It might be just going to sit with somebody who is homebound. And if you say, I just don't have time for that. I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just too busy. Then we may need to reevaluate what we're doing. May I suggest not allowing the world and all of its promises to suck you dry. May I suggest what the prophet Isaiah said. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen again to where the woman ran. When, the, when Satan was after her. In verse 14 it says, But the woman was given the two wings 
of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. When we are exhausted, when we feel, and by the way, when we are exhausted, that is when Satan likes to attack. That's when he likes to do it. When you're exhausted, when you're burning the candle at both ends, when you feel like you're just broken down and out, we don't fly to our own cubby holes. We hide neath the wings of the Lord. We let Him be our rest. We let Him be our comfort. This morning, are you resting in the Lord? Are you resting in Christ? Satan has no power over those who are resting in the Lord. None. So take your rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And we ask you to be with us this morning. Father, I pray and I ask for forgiveness for myself when I am flippant about my walk with Christ, when I'm flippant about my calling. And Father, I know personally that you know I prepare for Bible studies and I prepare for sermons and I do church meetings and I, I do the fellowship thing with the church, but Father, I know that I lack, dearly lack, time in prayer and time in your word and time serving outside of church, just being the man of God that you've called me to be. And I'm, it's likely that there are others in the same boat. Father, I know that I spend personally far too much time on pitiful entertainment. And activities that do nothing but distract me from Christ. And I pray, Lord, forgiveness for that. And I pray that you would help me overcome that. Lord, I pray for our church and I pray that we would grow in faith. And that you would encourage us. And you would help us to prioritize our life. And not allow footholds for Satan to accuse us of things that you have already won over, Lord. You are victorious through Christ, through His blood. May we remember that. And may we remember that this morning as we take part in the Lord's Supper. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.